turn to our scripture for our sermon today. It will be found in Mark chapter 8, and we will be reading verses 1 through 21, specifically the ESV version. I'll give you all a moment if you plan to turn in your Bibles. All right, the word of the Lord says this. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thank you, Gentry. And from my perspective, if you wanna wear a jacket as you're presiding, you're most welcome to. My name is Bill Smith. If we've not yet met, I'm also one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And if you're visiting with us, we need to take just a few moments to do some family business, which is to talk about why I'm sitting on a stool. Um, some of you have noticed that I've been limping lately, and you've asked me about that. Uh, and apparently, according to the doctor, it's because I've torn the meniscus in my left knee. This goes back a while. It goes back to the church picnic. Uh, I knew then that there was something wrong, something later popped uh, in the rest of the week. And I just kept thinking, ah, okay, you know, it's, it's bad, but get over it. You know, just rest it a little bit, keep walking, you'll be fine. 
I'm not. Uh, and, and if I'm honest with you, and obviously with myself, it's, it's actually worse. Uh, several of the Renewal brothers have urged me, you should do something smarter than just ignore this. So I finally went to see a doctor. That's been a process. We've done x-rays, MRIs, and this last Thursday, the doctor has scheduled me for surgery this coming Friday. He says to me, this is really bad. We need to take care of this. Now, I'm being told that this is a relatively simple procedure, uh, that I should be able to walk without a cane within two to three days. That's not walking well, but it is walking unaided. It's going to take about three weeks to be able to get back to some kind of level of normal functionality, and then about three months will determine where the new baseline is for me. So we're not going back to where I was, but the hope is that we'll get to where I'm much better than I am now. I wanted to share that with you because we're family. This is what family does. But I also wanted to do this because I wanted to ask you to pray for me and to pray for the Smith family. Not just about healing, that's important for quality of life kinds of issues. But frankly, the internal issues are more important and they're gonna be a lot harder for us. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, what is this? This, this is relatively minor, especially compared to what I know several of you have already had to face this week. This is not that big a deal. But what this does is it drives up issues inside of me that make it hard for the people around me. Okay, I, I, I don't like being hurt. I don't like being dependent. And I respond typically with pride. I can do it, even when I should not be doing it. Uh, and so what do I do? I push people away. Sally bears the brunt of most of this. Um, I, I am not a good patient. I hate getting special treatment. So we're, I made dinner the other night, and I'm carrying my plate over to the table. I sit down, and then I do one of these, and I start to get back up, and, and Sal says, what's wrong? And I said, I don't have a fork. And she, as I'm getting up, she says, sit down. <laughs> I'll get that for you. Friends, it took every last ounce of my sanctification to do what I was told because I don't like this. I don't like being in a position where I have to receive and I can't give back. And you realize this is going to be really hard for us. It's going to be really good, though. It's also going to be hard for Sal because she has to see me in ways that she's not used to seeing me and she has to relate to me in ways that she's not used to. We start going for our walks now. My max speed is somewhere between tortoise and, and snail. And, and so she's walking with this really old man. And, and this is going to create a lot of adjustment for us, which is what you'd expect, right? Because in a relationship, when the two of you are together and one of you moves, changes, or does something, the other person has to move to keep up. <laughs> Otherwise, you're no longer together. And so we recognize this is good, but it's also going to be hard. So asking that you would pray for us, that we would take the opportunity seriously to grow together. This would be one of those things that deepens our relationship as we tackle this together. Okay? Thank you. Let's go to Scripture. We are back in the book of Mark this morning, and we've come to a passage that just sounds, if you've been with us, it sounds really familiar. Just a few pages ago, in chapter 6, Jesus had compassion for another crowd. It was a different crowd in the wilderness. But it was a crowd that had also been with him for an extended period of time, like this one. And Jesus fed them. He took a few loaves of bread and he broke those, multiplied the food so that everyone had as much as they wanted, so much that there were even basketfuls left over. 
lot of similarities between these two accounts, but there's also lots of differences. Here in chapter 8, Jesus initiates seeing the need rather than the dis- having the disciples bring it up first. The number of the loaves and the baskets are different. The number of people who are fed are different. This crowd is much smaller. The other crowd was 5,000 men plus women plus children. This one is 4,000 people total. And the way that everybody leaves is different. Jesus doesn't send the disciples on ahead of him. He leaves with them. Most notably, however, the people groups are different. Crowd in chapter 6 is Jewish. This one is not. Which underlines for us what Mark has been telling us since chapter 7, that Jesus intends to offer the same kingdom with the same benefits both to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. That's great news for us. But it makes me wonder, why is this passage here? We just heard two miracles from last week. Jesus cast out a demon and healed a deaf-mute man in Gentile territory. Don't those already tell us that there's a place for the Gentiles in God's kingdom? You think, well then, what does this account have to say to us that these other accounts didn't? Mark only writes about a limited number of things. He doesn't repeat himself. He's not a clumsy author, just throwing things together randomly. Instead, as we've been seeing, each time he tells us something, it's to show us something of Jesus that we haven't seen before. So, what's he want to tell us this time? What's he trying to communicate? To understand that, we're going to zero in on three things this morning. First, we're going to look at why Jesus does miracles at all. Second, we'll see why it's easy to miss what Jesus is doing. And then third, we'll notice how Jesus responds when you miss what he's doing. So why Jesus does miracles, why it's easy to miss the point of what he's doing, and how he responds when you do miss him. First, why does Jesus do miracles? Jesus' approach to the supernatural is different from what I expect. Or maybe to be more accurate, it's different from what I would do in his place. See, if I could do miracles, I would do them all the time, wouldn't you? Think about how much time you would save doing housework. Why wash clothes if you could just snap your fingers and the clothes are clean? Or snap and the clothes are clean and folded. Clean and folded and put away be huge. Or think about lawn care. You could revolutionize the industry. Every time the grass starts to get a little tall, you just level it all to the same with a word. Or you make weeds disappear. Leaves fall down. Why blow leaves into piles when you can just zap them into a pile? Why zap them into a pile if you can just zap them into oblivion? And food. Why bother cooking? Why bother ordering out? If you could just make food show up on the table every single day, why wouldn't you? See, I would do miracles constantly if I could. Jesus can do miracles, but he doesn't do them constantly. And when he does do them, he doesn't want other, a lot of people to know that he has. And so he takes people aside, like he did last week when he took the deaf-mute man away from the crowd before he healed him. Or he sends the onlookers away like when he raised the synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead. Or he regularly tells people, don't make a big deal about this. Don't tell other people what I've done for you. Or when they don't listen to him but go around proclaiming what he's done, he takes himself away when he's getting too much attention. He's not interested 
in having a reputation as a miracle worker, a wonder worker, a traveling magician. He's remarkably reserved given what he can do supernaturally. Which tells you that the miracles are important, but they can't be too important. He doesn't let them dominate his ministry. They don't get to take center stage in his kingdom. There's something else in his mind that has to be more important, more central. And so you think about these two miracles here, and you realize it's not at all clear how he feeds the two crowds. In both, he blesses the food, he breaks it, hands it to the disciples, but it's not clear when and where the actual multiplying took place. Does it take place as he breaks the loaves? You're not told. Or does it happen as the disciples hand them out? You're not told. The mechanism of how it's done is not clear. It's almost as if the disciples themselves aren't totally clear what just happened. They know that the miracle happened. They're just not sure how it did. In other words, the miracle is not allowed to eclipse the one doing the miracles. Jesus is still front and center. And the disciples understand that about him. They don't expect him to do a miracle here with this crowd in chapter 8. In their minds, that's just not standard operating procedure. So Jesus tells them, verse 2, that the crowd is hungry. Verse 3, they might faint on the way home if he sends them home. And the disciples don't say to him, well, look, this is easy. Here's a couple loaves of bread, just you know. Do that thing, that thingy thing that you're always doing everywhere we go. They don't say anything like that. What does that tell you? From the disciples' vantage point, Jesus' miracles were not common. Not something that he was doing constantly. Not something that they could expect from him or should expect from him in that moment. See, Jesus is not wandering around doing miraculous things in a casual, offhand manner. Instead, he does miracles for a very specific purpose. And we got a glimpse of some of that last week, right? That he does miracles when they relieve suffering, when they relieve threats to people. He does miracles in order to restore people's humanity to them, the humanity that suffering and evil threaten to take away. He gives people back the image of God that God intended them to have. That's what he does. This passage tells us why he does it. And the reason here is twofold. So first, he does miraculous things because he cares about people. He cares deeply. Verse 2, Jesus tells the disciples, I have compassion on the crowd. And that's a very intense word there, the word compassion. Some of you may have heard that this is a word that's related to your internal organs. The Greek, ancient Greeks believed that the seat of your emotions was on the inside of your organs, and so your compassion comes up out of you. And so it sort of carries the sense here that Jesus is saying that, that something is, he's feeling something deep inside, that it's gripping him. We would say that it's a gut-wrenching kind of feeling. It's a word that you typically use when there's a natural affinity between you and someone. Affinity between you and your friends or you and your family. People that you're easily drawn to. But in Mark, this word compassion is used about people 
that you're naturally repelled by or repulsed by. And so Jesus has compassion for a leper in chapter 1. Compassion for a crowd of revolutionaries in chapter 6. Compassion for a demon-possessed boy in chapter 9. People that you would keep your distance from. Those are the people that capture Jesus, that grip him most deeply. And now here in chapter 8, he feels compassion for this Gentile crowd. This group of people that good Orthodox Jews would keep their distance from. But Jesus doesn't. He's drawn to them cares about them, feeds them because he cares deeply about them. They've been with him for three days. They've been drinking in what he has to say to the point that they've exhausted their physical resources. Verse 2, they have nothing to eat. They have taken scripture literally that you cannot live by bread alone, but that you have to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so they had a choice. They can either take in bread or God's word. They can either go home, get dinner, or they can stay. They can fill their stomachs or they can fill their souls. And they chose God's word, knowing that nothing else can nourish their souls. And therefore, nothing else is more important. See, if your soul is nourished, you can handle suffering well. You can handle being hungry. But if your stomach is full, it does not help you deal with your spiritual hunger. And so these people have put themselves in a position of physical hunger because of their longing to get God's word, as much of God's word as Jesus is willing to give them. And Jesus responds, God responds, with compassion for them. He wants to feed their souls, but he also wants to feed their bodies. He's come to care for the whole person. And those that he's drawn to, those who grip him emotionally, are those who recognize that their spiritual hunger has to take priority over any other kind of hunger. That's one reason that Jesus does this miracle. It's out of compassion for these people who desperately want him. It's part of who our God is. Second reason he does this miracle is so that people can understand him better. The disciples ask him, verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's a reasonable question. But the way they, they ask it is really interesting. Their grammar is interesting. It's clumsy in the English, so you get it changed in our translation. A more literal reading of what they said would be something like this. From where will anyone be able to satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? From where? From what source? From what source will anyone be able to satisfy these people? The disciples look around and they see 4,000 people in the middle of the wilderness. People who've been there for three days and now have nothing to eat, and it's obvious there is no earthly way to feed that many people, to satisfy them. No way to avoid having them faint on the way home when Jesus dismisses them. And then amazingly, there is bread. Enough bread not just to have a little taste, but verse 8, enough bread that everyone ate and was satisfied. From where will anyone be able to satisfy these people? From Jesus. But to do that, he has to have the power to create something out of nothing in order to feed that many people instantly. From where? From God. 
who apparently is here right now standing in front of the rest of the crowd. He's revealing who he is in this miracle, showing himself to you, making it obvious as he acts on the compassion that's inside of him, showing that he alone is the source of life, that he alone is able to satisfy you. That's why Jesus does miracles when he does them. They express his heart and they reveal his presence. They show the heart of God for his people and they show the presence of God among his people. And that's why you never hear of Jesus doing any miracles for himself. They're not for him. He already knows his own heart. He already understands his presence is here. You don't hear him doing miracles for himself. You don't hear him calling attention to the miracles. Doesn't try to wow and astonish people. Never says to them, hey, wait, wait, wait till you see this. You're, you're, you're going to love it. He doesn't say anything that lets you think that the most exciting thing that's taking place is the miracle. Instead, the exciting things he does, the miracles, point to something even more exciting. They point to someone more exciting. To God being there right then. And the miracles do this pointing out work as Jesus goes about his mission of bringing the kingdom of God to this world. They're what happens as he encounters things in his travel that are not in alignment with God's kingdom. As he encounters suffering, he encounters threats, he encounters distortions of humanity, he encounters things that are not what God wants for this world, not things that are in God's kingdom. And when Jesus encounters those things, he sets right what's been wrong. And in that sense, his miracles are not just things out there, on their own, standalone kind of things. They're not neutral. They're not good things that should be done. They're kingdom things that God believes must be done, that he must do according to what he thinks is good. In that sense, the miracles are what? They're an extension of himself, of his heart. They declare that God has broken through the darkness of this world and that he is here right now. And what was true 2,000 years ago is also true of you and me today. When God breaks into your world and he serves you out of his compassion, when he meets your needs, provides for you when you're struggling, when he answers your prayers, whether that's prayers for healing or prayers that you'll get a job so that you can make money so that you can eat, or whether that's when you pray for someone to be kind to you when you ask for their help. When God answers your prayers, what is he doing? He's doing to set something right that's been wrong in your world. And he's doing that in a way that shows you his heart for you and doing that in a way that makes you aware of his presence with you. Make sure then that you recognize both of those things, his heart and his presence, and recognize that those are far more valuable than the thing that he gave you. And so take a moment as an op uh, 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 take those moments as an opportunity to thank him for his presence in, his, in your life, to thank him for being with you, even more than you thank him for what he gave you. Take those as moments to thank him for the giver way more than you thank him for the gift. To remind yourself how thankful you are that you have a God who has compassion for you, who is moved with feeling toward you.
And remember that God's way of serving us, how he acts to help us in our need, that has to inform how we serve others by meeting their needs. That when we do that, we are acting as his representatives from within his kingdom. And so we now, what, we now enter into the lives of other people on this planet with the very conscious intention of expressing to them, here's the heart of God for you. We do that in order to give them a taste of his compassion. And we do that in order to give them a taste of his presence. A reminder that he has not forgotten this planet. He has not abandoned his creation. But that he's still reaching out to it. He reaches out to it directly. And he reaches indirectly through his people. That's what moved Jesus to serve in the miraculous ways that he did. And it's what has to move you and I as well. We can't just do things for the sake of doing them because they're good things to do. We have to do them to express the heart and the presence of God that has not abandoned the world to itself. Anything else that drives us is an attempt to do things in a way that is different from what drove Jesus. That's point one, why Jesus does miracles. Point two, why it's easy to miss what he's doing. And this is important because it's pretty obvious that nearly everyone around him is missing what he's doing. That he's declaring that God is here now literally physically on the planet. Take the Pharisees, for example. They come to him, verse 11, and they begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. There's nothing good in that sentence about why, what brings them to Jesus. They came to argue with him, to seek a sign, to test him. What is it that they want? They want a sign. That's not the same word that Mark uses to describe Jesus' miracles. When Mark talks about Jesus' miracles, he uses a different word, a word that means an act of power or a mighty act. The sign word is completely different, and its source is different. It's not something that Jesus would do as he reveals his heart and reveals his presence. Instead, it's something that heaven would do to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. They're asking for something that stands outside and above Jesus, over him in authority, outside and over God and above him in authority. Something that the Pharisees can then stand back from and dispassionately consider, evaluate on its own merits to see whether or not they think Jesus really is from God. In other words, they don't want to see another miracle. They've seen plenty of those. We know from Mark that they've seen him at least heal a paralyzed man, heal a man with a withered hand, that they've watched him drive out demons from people. They've seen his miracles and they have concluded that what empowers him is not God, but it's Satan. That by the prince of demons, he drives out demons. They've seen his miracles and they've what? They've rejected them. They've rejected what Jesus was saying about himself through his miracles. They haven't seen God's heart. They haven't recognized God's presence in what Jesus has been doing. And so now they come to test him, to stand in judgment over him, to get something from him that they can judge independently, something that they can assess by their own authority. What is it they're trying to do? They're trying to replace his authority with their own. They've chosen to believe their own evaluation of Jesus 
over Jesus's revelation of himself. They've chosen to believe that what they say of him is more true than what he says of himself through his miracles. Now, why is that? They don't want him because he's threatening their system. We've seen that a number of times. He ignores their traditions. The traditions of the elders that they are careful to keep and that they are just as careful to make sure everybody else keeps. And so by ignoring their rules and their agenda, their program, Jesus is threatening their position. He's threatening their cultural authority, their ability to tell other people what they should and shouldn't be doing. And he's saying that their understanding of how the world works, that, that, that it's all messed up. That you can't work your way to God. That you have to accept that God himself is working his way to you. They don't want that kind of God. They're not interested in that. They want to think well of themselves based on their own merits. And so they've created a religion that rejects God's intentions, rejects God's purposes for this world, and because Jesus doesn't throw in with them, they've decided to reject him as well, despite everything that they see him doing. Jesus has this engagement with them, this encounter, and he gets into the boat with his disciples, and then he sees something in his guise, something that concerns him, something that causes him to warn them. Verse 15, to say, watch out, beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. Guys, there's something that you need to be aware of. Watch out. Or you could end up just like the Pharisees and Herod. Because in the Pharisees and Herod, there is something that is so dangerous, something that just, it starts small, like a little bit of leaven, but then it expands over time so that just a little of it has the potential to propagate throughout your entire self and to influence all of you. And if you let it catch hold inside of you, it could influence you. Influence you to reject the clear revelation of myself that you have already seen. And you could end up wanting nothing to do with me. End up being just as adversarial to me as they are if you don't see me for who I am. It's a strong warning. He warns the disciples against seeing the miracles that he does, but rejecting who he is as God doing them. He warns the disciples, and immediately they start talking about bread. And in that moment, they've just done what? They've missed seeing him for who he is. They miss the clear implication that the only one who can satisfy thousands in the desert, God, is there with them in the boat right now. They saw him do a mighty work in the desert, and they missed it. They missed what he was saying about himself then, and they missed what he's trying to tell them about himself now, and they missed how much in danger they are now. And that's a danger that you and I can easily be in as well. Because this kind of rejection is subtle. It, it just looks like distraction. It doesn't look like overt antagonism. Like, like you know, you're, you're just a little too interested in lunch. And so the guys kind of miss it because they're a little more focused on bread. It, it, that, that feels different. Like you just lost your focus for a moment. Where you might tell yourself, I, I'm not out to challenge Jesus. I'm not out to test him. 
I just get so busy, I don't take him or his activity into account as I go about my day. And so I, I, I just forget to ask him for his help. I, I, I don't think to talk to him during the day. It doesn't occur to me to consider what he might be up to and how I might fit into that. I just get on with my life, and, and I kind of assume that he tags along with me, ready to lend a hand when I need it. What are those kind of thoughts? They're symptoms of rejection, of ending up where the Pharisees did, of living as if Jesus and his kingdom have no real impact on you or how you live your life. They're symptoms of living a life apart from him. But they feel much more gentle than coming to him to argue with him, to test him. And that's what makes this dangerous. See, the Pharisees reject Jesus with guns blazing. It, it's just clear and obvious what they're doing. The disciples, you and me, can also reject Jesus. But we do so much more quietly while we're still in the boat with him, while we're in relative proximity to him and to his people. So you wonder, are, are there any warning signs in this passage, signs that would help you know if you're sort of sliding into that rejecting Jesus mode. And you look in the passage and see several of them. The first is that you would ignore or avoid what Jesus says. Jesus says to the guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of, the, of Herod. And the guys do not take a single moment to consider that maybe there's a connection between us and between the Pharisees and Herod. Pharisees and Herod, they're not even on these guys' radar. Why? Because the disciples have already ignored what Jesus was trying to say to them. That's the first sign that you're rejecting Jesus. His words don't seem to land in your heart very much anymore. You can read your Bible, you can even pray, and nothing convicts you. Nothing moves you. Nothing stands out to you. His words have relatively little impact on you. That's the first sign that you're in danger. Second sign is when something in the physical world occupies your attention while Jesus is trying to show you something of himself. And, and these don't have to be bad things. They can be good things like bread. But a good thing that becomes your all-consuming center of gravity for where your mind goes. I have a number of projects going on at home right now. There are things that I have to make a lot of decisions on. All good things, important things, but things that I find keep pushing God and his words out of my mind. It was really obvious this last week. I'm reading scripture several times, and over and over and over, I'd get down about half a page or so and realize I have absolutely no idea what I've just read. Because while my eyes are moving over the page, my mind is occupied somewhere else, thinking through all of the decisions that I'm planning to make. And so what would I do? I, I'd stop myself, I'd start back up at the top, and I'd start reading again. And what happened? Each time, immediately, my mind is off somewhere else, and I get to the bottom, I have no idea what I've read. What is that? That's a dangerous sign. That's a sign that says I'm allowing something to replace Jesus, that I find that thing, whatever it is I'm thinking about, I find that much more interesting and engaging than I find him. This is now where I find life, which connects to the third warning sign, that I no longer sense the reality of Jesus being with me. 
no longer satisfied with him, satisfied by him. Instead, something else has now pushed him out. Something that promises to give me more life than he could to make me more happier, even though in that moment he's offering himself to me. You think about the insanity of what's happening here. The disciples are with him in the boat, and what occupies them is bread. They're fixated on something tangible. And they're not the last ones in church history to do so. Whole sections of the church in our age have run after what we call the prosperity gospel. They believe that if we're just healthier, wealthier, life will be better. It has to be better. And if those things capture you, what happens? They become the center focus of your worship. They squeeze Jesus to the side so that he becomes a means to getting these other things. And so you're encouraged to worship him, not for him, and not for a relationship with him, but worship him so that he'll give you those other things. And you fall into that. Why? Because those things feel more satisfying to you than he does. You can do that with very physical things. You can do that with intangible things as well. Things that are a little bit more like joy or happiness or feeling good or things like justice or cultural renewal or community and connectedness meaning and purpose in life all things that come along with a relationship with him things that are an extension of him but things that you can slowly come to value more than a relationship with him and so they take his place. They feel more satisfying. And so you worship him. You study the scripture. Why? To fuel your passion and your interest, your engagement in these other things. They take center stage. He becomes a means of having them. When Jesus is not your first, your highest, greatest, deepest desire, then just like the disciples, you're in danger of rejecting him. Just like the Pharisees and Herod did. It is so easy, point two, to miss who Jesus is and to end up rejecting him without even knowing that you're doing that. Which makes you realize just how much help you and I need just to live a life of faith. Just to keep Jesus in the center of our lives. That we can't even trust ourselves to do that. And thankfully, God gets that. And so point three, watch how Jesus responds to people who miss him and miss what he's doing. When the Pharisees ask for a sign, when they tell him that they are rejecting him and they're rejecting what he's told them through his miracles, he responds, verse 12, by sighing deeply in his spirit. And the word there for sigh deeply is another one of these strong Greek words. Mark seems to use a lot of them. It's more of a groan than a sigh. And so you can't think he's angry, he's irritated. You have to think more he's dismayed, he's distressed, he's despairing. In other words, Jesus is not hardened against them. Their rejection of him does bother him, but not for his sake. It bothers him because what they're doing is not good for them. It's not what he wants for them. And so he sighs deeply. It gives you a sense of how he responds. With the disciples, his response goes even deeper. He sees their potential rejection of him, and he pleads with them. 
verse 17, pulls out all the stops, rips off question after question, one right after the other. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? <laughs> remember what I just did with the five loaves and then with the seven loaves? Do you not yet understand? He's desperately trying to get them to see what they have to see. That they're on the edge of rejecting him because they still haven't grasped what he's been trying to tell them about himself. Contrast here is really striking. One of the commentaries puts it, the disciples are anxious about a lack of bread. Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. He's not hardened to people rejecting him, not stoic. It matters deeply to him. He wants you to see who he really is. He wants you to understand what you could have with him. But it's going to take more than his wanting, more than his desire to break through to his people, to break through to you and me. And he knows that. And so as you look at those questions and listen to them, they take you back to the prophet Isaiah, to chapter 6, where God told Isaiah to pronounce judgment on his people because they had rejected him. They had rejected what he made plain to them about himself and about his desires for this world. And so Isaiah was to say to them, verse 9, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eye ears heavy and blind their eyes. Jesus pulls from these words as he's talking to his guys. He pulls from the words of judgment. The judgment of having eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear and a heart that doesn't understand because you've rejected what God already told you, what he's revealed about himself. And so here's Jesus asking his guys questions linked to that judgment. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not yet see and having ears do you not hear? Guys, are you under God's judgment right now? Are you experiencing it and you don't even know it? That judgment is a strong theme in the book of Isaiah. It tracks through a number of his prophecies because it tracks through God's people. Here it is again in the boat, tracking through people who have been following God people that Jesus has called to himself. And your heart goes out to me, you want to know, <laughs> is there any hope here? And the answer is yes, because even though judgment is woven throughout the book of Isaiah, there's also a question that's woven there as well. And the question asks, is there any hope? Is there any hope for people who don't see or hear or understand? Is it possible? Can they have hearts that are different? Can they see and perceive? Can they hear and understand? And the answer is yes. Because God has a servant who will come, and this servant is going to do something that actually changes the people. In chapter 52, we're told what will happen. I'll give you the result of what will take place first. It's in the last half of verse 15. 
The kings shall shut their mouths because of him, because of God's servant. They'll shut their mouths for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. They will see and they will understand. That's the result. That's the reversal of God's judgment. And it's not just on Israel, but on many others represented here by the kings. That's the result. But what is it that produces this seeing and understanding? So you back up a little bit to verse 13 where God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Sounds great, but keep reading. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations so that the kings see and understand. He's going to be marred. His form will be distorted beyond that of the children of mankind. He'll barely resemble anything human. And somehow that's what's going to make the difference because in doing so, the nations, even the kings, will see and understand. They will grasp what God reveals about himself. They'll no longer reject what God shows him. They will now see and understand. This is an amazing servant who can undo the curse of judgment. But how will he do it? And why is he so damaged in the process, so marred that he doesn't resemble anything human? Chapter 53 continues the prophecy, talks more about this servant, lots of good stuff there. We're going to skip to the end, to where it all comes to a fine point in the last half of verse 12, where God rewards his servant. Verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This servant, the one who's going to open eyes and hearts to understand, by, will do so by interceding for them. He will plead not only with them so that they see, like he's doing in the boat with the disciples, he's going to plead with God on their behalf. He'll plead with God for them. And he's going to be successful. His intercession will work, but it will come at the cost of his own life. He'll have to pour out his soul to death, be numbered identified with the transgressors, bear in his body their sins. And the pain of bearing their rejection of God is going to be so bad it will deform him, disfigure him beyond what any human's ever experienced. And so Jesus is not only the one who can satisfy his people, he's not only the real bread that they need so badly, but he's the one who breaks the bread before giving it to them. It's a small hint of what's coming for him. A small hint that tells you that the true bread of life has to be broken before his people can have him and be satisfied. And Jesus knew that. Passage that he was familiar with. He knew it was coming. He knew how bad it was going to be. And yet there was something greater inside of him that overcame that horror. He had compassion on his people. He had compassion on you. He cares so deeply for his people, he's willing to be broken for them, sprinkled 
his blood poured out for the nations. And as he intercedes for his people, he intercedes successfully. And he does that so that you can see him for who he is. So that you can now hear him like you need to. And so that you can have a heart that is not hardened toward him. A heart that loves him more than you love anything else. A heart that responds with just a tiny fraction of the love back to him that he already has for you. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me and your people for not having seen you. For not having recognized your presence with us. For not having recognized your heart for us. For having taken you lightly already this morning. Lord, for being consumed with so many other things, thinking that we'll find more life in them than we could ever find in you. Lord, thank you that you saw that and you stepped in to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, I pray right now that your people would experience that, that I'd experience that, and that we would respond with love back to you. In Jesus' name, 